Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning just a, a brief three-week uh, series, three-Sunday series, as we uh, think about the coming of Christ uh, into our world as our Redeemer. And so uh, for, for this Sunday and the next two Sundays, Jeff and I will be looking at passages from uh, Luke's gospel. And so a little bit of a pause from First Peter in that regard. So this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 56. Uh, you're welcome to remain seated as we read from this portion of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Pay careful attention. Uh, this is the Word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you for your promise that your word will not return void, but accomplishes all that you purpose for it. So Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us today, uh, that your word would uh, expose our sin, convict us of it, that your word would convince us of your grace to us in Jesus Christ and his gospel and that by your spirit, uh, you would build us up uh, for every good deed, for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've entered into uh, that most wonderful time of year, that season we all love. The leaves have fallen. Uh, the grass is brown and looks like it's dying. Most of your outdoor landscaping is dormant. And most importantly... It's that time of year when we find it much easier to accidentally generate static electricity and shock ourselves and others. The most wonderful season of the year. Uh, you know this experience. You've donned your smart wool socks. You're walking in your sock feet, as they say, on the carpet, unknowingly building up a charge of electricity in your body. You reach out to touch the doorknob and then boom! Miniature lightning strike, or worse, you lean in to smooch your sweetheart and sparks fly. 
Not in the way that you intended, though. Did a little research on this. Um, you know, I have a doctorate, so I know how to research. So I got on WikiHow, and um, there was an article about three ways to generate static electricity. At the end of the section detailing the sock and carpet method, it says this. Take this to heart, okay? That you should always ask permission before discharging electricity on another person because, quote, not everyone likes static shock. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? This section of Luke's gospel feels like it is brimming with electricity. Like there's just this buildup. Like Luke has been sliding the wool socks across the carpet, just building up this electric charge. And our passage this morning is just my way of thinking about it, so you can go with me or not. Uh, our passage this morning feels like this, the electric charge has been built up and somebody's reached out their finger and they've touched something and the, the miniature lightning bolt has been discharged. Uh, this morning, this passage that we're in is like a small bolt of lightning. And, and it's like an explosion of, of supernatural revelation from God through the pre-born John the Baptist in his mother's womb through the formerly barren Elizabeth, who's now six months pregnant, and through Mary, the mother of our Lord, each of them uh, revealing something from God. Uh, and here's why I think it's so electric. And you can go back and read kind of the verses leading up to this, and I think you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here. For 400 years, in, in this part of the history of God's people, for 400 years there's been prophetic silence. No word from a prophet for 400 years. You have Malachi kind of right there at the end of the old covenant period, and then silence. Nothing. No, no word from God. No, no fresh revelation about what God is at work doing. Just silence. And like, it's like 400 years of calm before a storm of redemptive activity and redemptive Revelation, except it's not been calm at all. God's people have been living under the oppression of other nations. They've gone into exile. They've come back from exile. Things aren't the same. It's not like what it used to be, the glory that was in the, the original temple from Solomon. Now they've got this second temple, and it's not nearly what it was. There's this anticipation. They're under the oppression of foreign nations. They are waiting for a deliverer to come as promised, to come from Zion. They've been waiting for this long-promised Savior to come and to rescue them. And now, kind of like, you know, if you think back to Genesis, when Adam first sees Eve, there's this deep exhale of joy when she finally is brought to him, and he says, whoa, man. Right. Um, it's that kind of anticipation now met. The time has finally arrived. At last, now, God has come to redeem us. And Luke builds up to this, this meeting, this encounter between Mary and her relative Elizabeth, between John the Baptist and Elizabeth's womb and Jesus in Mary's womb. He builds up to this with all of this prophecy, these revelations, these angelic visitations that have happened. The first bit of word from God in 400 years to two women, miraculous births, 
uh, or at least one revelation came to Elizabeth's husband, but also to her, of these miraculous births that would come. John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, the great Redeemer. And here we have the mothers of these two promised children conceived miraculously. The one, Zechariah and Elizabeth, beyond the normal age of of childbearing, having no children before this, unable to, humanly speaking. And now she's pregnant, six months pregnant. And Mary, not even married, having never known a man, a virgin, miraculously conceived a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these two, these first recipients of revelation after 400 years of silence, these two come together, spark, miniature bolt of lightning. In this encounter, I want us to see three things. Uh, Contrary to the outline in your bulletin, I want you to see these three things. First, I want you to see the joy of encountering Christ. Joy of encountering Christ. Second, I want us to see the great reversal that Christ brings, the great reversal that Christ brings. And then third, I want us to see the hope that he gives, the hope that he gives. Let's first look at the joy of encountering Christ. There's a a lot of joy in this meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, Right before this, Mary has been visited by the angel Gabriel who has told her the Holy Spirit will overshadow you Uh, Essentially, the Holy Spirit will uh, form this child in your womb miraculously. And she says, how can this be? You know, I've never known a man. How can this be? And And the angel Gabriel says, nothing will be impossible with God. In fact, your relative, maybe a cousin of some type, your relative Elizabeth, she who was called barren, is now six months pregnant. Mary hears this. It's, it's confirmation that God can do the impossible. She hears this, and so we pick up in verse 39. She goes in haste without any delay to go see Elizabeth, as if to confirm that God is doing, he's at work doing the impossible. She shows up, walks in the, the house of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth, and as soon as Elizabeth hear, hears her greeting, the baby leaps for joy. So you have, you have three kind of places of joy in this encounter. You have the joy of John the Baptist in the womb. You have the joy of Elizabeth and you have the joy of Mary. So just, just briefly, these three portraits of joy, joy from John the Baptist, not even yet born and yet full of the Holy Spirit as the angel Gabriel said he would be. Elizabeth hears Mary, and John the Baptist begins to leap in her belly. Now, babies move. Uh, that's, that's normal, obviously, uh, for babies to be moving before they're born. And, and, um, and so this is, this is abnormal movement. <laughs> this is not just the normal movement of a child in the womb. This is a, it's, it's literally, he's jumping for joy. Uh, There's kind of an echo here back to the end of Malachi, where Malachi talks about the coming of the Messiah. And he says to God's people, you will leap for joy just like cattle leaping from their stall, calves leaping from their stall. I don't know if you've ever seen a calf leap from its stall. It's quite a sight. I didn't think it was possible. That verse never made sense to me. And I went over to Bob Kearns' house one time, and he just had a, a calf born, and it was leaping. Um, And he says, that's the kind of joy that you will have when the Messiah comes. There will be this kind of uh, 
final anticipation and fulfillment of these promises so much that you won't be able to control yourself. You'll just leap for joy. Uh, I don't know if some of you have seen, there's thousands of things to see on the internet, but we saw recently uh, somebody put a video up of a, a little baby learning to walk. And as he's walking, somebody's playing some music. And as he's taking his first step, the music is so, it just gets into him so much that he stops walking and he just starts doing this kind of number. He's so full of joy. John the Baptist is full of joy because Jesus has come. He's encountering Christ and he's leaping with joy because at last, these promises have arrived in this child who will bring redemption, the joy of John the Baptist. Joy from Elizabeth. Um, I mean, think about Elizabeth's position here. Here she is her entire life, um, childless, unable to have a child. And then finally, the Lord has, has given her this gift of a child and John, John the Baptist, who's, who's yet to be born. And yet her focus when she sees Mary is not about the good things that are happening to her. Her focus when she sees Mary is this. I mean, listen to these words. Why, verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Because when your greeting came, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Notice what she calls Jesus here. He is my Lord. Uh, here on the lips of Elizabeth, who, who Luke tells us is full of the Holy Spirit, she declares the deity of Jesus in these words, that the baby in Mary's womb is the Lord. He is God. And at the same time, fully human, fully human and fully divine, one person. She has joy because she is encountering Christ uh, even in the womb. And then Mary's joy, which occupies the bulk of this passage and this psalm that Mary sings. Uh, notice Mary's joy here at the beginning of her song in verses 46 and 47. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's song forms the, the heart of this passage. It's traditionally called the Magnificat because of the Latin translation of the first line uh, of her song. I don't know Latin. I just know Latin words, and that's, that's one you should know because it's a, a famous song. It's often sung at, at Christmas time. Uh, but I want, what I want you to see about Mary's joy is this. Two, two things uh, briefly here. This is a deep down in the heart joy. She's got joy, 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 joy down in her heart. My soul, my spirit magnifies the Lord, rejoices in God my Savior. She's talking about a joy that is at the core of who she is. And it's bubbling up in her as she hears Elizabeth confirm what the angel has said by saying, my, you're the mother of my Lord. The baby in your womb is the Lord. This joy is deep down. It's in her heart. And then secondly, as it bubbles up, the joy comes out in the words of the Bible. She is full of scripture here. You know, it's, it's said of uh, Charles Spurgeon. I think this is right. That when, if you pricked Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist, uh, preacher in, in uh, 19th century England, that, that if you pricked him, he bled Puritan. But if you pricked, pricked the Puritans, they bled Bible, which I think is probably as true of Spurgeon as it was of the Puritans. They were full of it. Um, and here Mary has this encounter of joy in Elizabeth's presence, both full of the Holy Spirit here, and, and she overflows, that joy overflows out of the depths of her heart 
full of scripture. Now, those of you who've been in the adult Sunday school classes, we've been going through 1 Samuel. You're probably hearing this and you're thinking about Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Uh, Mary is, I'm sure, thinking about Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 of how God visits the humble in their lowly estate and how he lifts them up. Um, and and that, that usually is kind of the main connection that we make. Uh, but just consider this for a second. Mary's psalm, Mary's song here, has allusions and echoes from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Job, the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. <laughs> she is full of Scripture. And, and one writer simply puts it this way. He says, Mary puts the whole Bible in this song. Uh, this is a joy that comes deep down from this long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise to redeem his people. And now this promise is coming to fulfillment in Mary's son, Jesus, and out of her heart comes the Bible. I wonder if that's true for us uh, or if we're moving towards that direction that when things come out of our hearts, whether joy or grief, um, concern, or, wh or whatever the case may be, as things come out of our hearts, are they shaped by the promises of God in Scripture? Are they informed even by the language of Scripture? That doesn't mean you have to quote the Bible every time you you say something from your heart, but are those things informing our hearts uh, more than, than other things? For Mary, uh, this song is so full of scripture that even uh, kind of unbelieving critical scholars say she couldn't have written this. This must be Luke putting words in her mouth. But those people don't know women who love the Bible. <laughs> and women who love the Bible, when they hurt, when they're joyful, whatever it is, guess what comes out of their hearts and out of their mouths? The promises of God. And, and we see that in Mary as well. She's full of hope in these promises, and that's what comes out. So Mary's joy. It's down in her heart, and it's full of the promises of Scripture. Let's look secondly here at the great reversal that God brings, the great reversal that, that he brings. This is kind of the heart of Mary's psalm, uh, this, this reversal. The humble, those of lowly estate, are lifted up. Uh, and the mighty, those who have exalted themselves, they're brought down. The hungry are fed, uh, and the rich go away empty. It's a great reversal. And, and Mary is exalting the Lord because that is the pattern of the redemption that he is bringing through Jesus. Uh, it's a pattern throughout Scripture, the pattern of God's redemptive work. You see it in the Exodus. Those who are under the oppression of Pharaoh, Israel, slaves in Egypt, uh, they are lowly. They are of a lowly estate. God brings them up. He exalts them as he carries them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Even Hannah in 1 Samuel, her song, her personal situation of, of barrenness, and, and the humiliation that came from her husband's other wife, you can put all that together, um, all of that forms the heart of her song in 1 Samuel, and yet her personal situation becomes kind of a, an object lesson, a picture of the situation of Israel itself, that they are humbled, that they are oppressed by others, and God, their Redeemer, is going to lift them up. He is going to come into their uh, humble estate, and he is going to raise them up from it. When we talk about the humble, what, what, do we, what do we mean? Why does, 
Scripture describe um, redemption in this, in this way? Who are the humble? In, in, this, in this context, the humble are those who are under the oppression of sin. They are under the oppression of sin. Not, not just under the oppression of sin, but they know it. And they know that they need a, a redeemer to deliver them out from that oppression to sin. You see, everybody is under sin's oppression. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody suffers from sin, whether your own sin or the sin of others. We're all under that in some ways. But the question is, do you see it? Do you recognize that that's what's going on in your life, that there's an oppression from sin and that there's a need for deliverance out of that and that there is a deliverer? The humble, those who are humble, are the ones who know that oppression and know that they need deliverance and that it can be found through Christ the Savior. Who are the mighty, the proud? These are the oppressors those who will not recognize their need for grace, either by their pressing down on others or simply not acknowledging that they need help from the outside, desperate help to rescue them, to save them. Those are the mighty. And, and this, Mary says, they're the ones who are brought low. They exalt themselves, but they are brought low. Jesus is constantly bringing these reversals. Uh, in his own ministry, you can think about the things that he, some of the things he says, first shall be last, Last shall be first. It's a great reversal. Or you can think about Jesus challenging the Pharisees on what they thought was important before God. They, they could whitewash the tomb, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. They could wash the cup and the plates and yet have no mercy to those who were in need of, of mercy. They could oppress the poor. Um, and yet exalt their, their righteous deeds. You see all of this kind of come to a head in the, the story of the tax collector and the, the Pharisee at the temple. Two men go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, is, he, he looks down on, on others because he views himself as righteous. He says, God, thank you. Thank you for how good I am. I do this and this and this, and I'm not like all these other people, especially like this tax collector over here. And he's looking up to heaven, and he's boasting. He is prideful because he's boasting in his own works, and the tax collector won't approach the altar, and he's looking down, and he's beating his breast, and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus brings a great reversal, an, an unexpected ending to that story, a punchline that strikes right at the heart. He says, the, the one who humbled himself, the tax collector, he's the one who goes home declared righteous in God's sight, and not the other. Why? Because he understood the oppression of sin, his own sin, and he understood his need for mercy and that there's a God who gives mercy to those who are under the oppression of sin. You could look at lots of other examples in the, in the scriptures. The prodigal son, the simple woman who lavishes worship on Jesus while others deem themselves too proper to do so. Jesus brings a great reversal. The humble are exalted, the mighty are brought low. But the question we have to ask is how? How is it that he brings this great reversal? Or another way to put it is how is it that he brings this hope? This hope that Mary and Elizabeth had been longing for and, and all the electric charge that had been built up and they saw it's coming in Jesus and 
miniature lightning bolts are exploding in this psalm and, and the baby leaping for joy. How is it that Christ has brought hope? Mary hints at it in the end of her psalm where he, she says in verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to, off, to his offspring forever. God gives mercy to those oppressed by sin. And he does it by giving Jesus who humbles himself for us. Uh, Jesus' own work of redemption mirrors this great reversal, does it not? He who is highly exalted, who has equality with God, does not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but empties himself and took the form of a, a servant and, and became like us, took on sinful flesh. And though he knew no sin, he became sin at the cross and bore the full weight of God's punishment for our sin. And in that, removes the oppression of sin from us. He humbled himself that he might lift us up. See, here's the wonderful thing about the gospel. The gospel is not about our exalting ourselves. The gospel is not about our proving our worth and our merit to God. That's not how God's grace works. The gospel is about a Savior who doesn't save us from a distance, but who comes into our mess, who comes into the oppression of sin, who comes into the, the darkness and the hopelessness of this world, and he takes it all on himself, and he bears it at the cross, and then he bursts through its chains in the resurrection. And he gives hope, and he gives mercy to those who say, I need it. He gives it freely. There's a, a stunning example of this, kind of an illustration in a, a book by a lady named Diane Langberg, who's a, a Christian counselor, a member of the PCA Church in Pennsylvania, a long-time uh, uh, Christian counselor, has written many books. She talks about a, a trip that she took to Ghana, and in Ghana, they visited a, a castle called Cape Coast Castle, and in the dungeon in the bottom of this castle were these uh, rooms, several rooms, maybe half a dozen rooms or so in the dungeon of this castle where slave traders kept uh, kidnapped men who were then sold for slavery in the, in the transatlantic Atlantic, uh, slave trade, you know, many years ago. Small, dank, dark, uh, diseased, death-infested rooms. Hundreds of men crammed in at a time. Just imagine uh, the darkness of that. She's on the tour in this castle. They go down to the dungeon, and the tour guide is explaining where they are and what happened there, and he points to the ceiling, and he says, you know what's above here? Of course, they all said no. And he said, it's the chapel where the slave traders worshipped as all of these stolen men were uh, in this filth and disease beneath them. And that disconnect startled her. She couldn't, it, it was hard for her to kind of grasp how these two things could fit together. And the tour guide said, heaven above, hell below. And she said this. She said, that's not what heaven does. 
Heaven leaves heaven. God comes down. He enters into the dungeon. He enters into the disease. He enters into the, the filth. He enters into the sin and the oppression of sin. And he brings us out of it because he dies in our place. And he breaks its power through his own death and through his resurrection. This is a savior who doesn't save us from a distance. He doesn't stiff arm us and say, it's too much, I can't handle it. He goes all the way down to the depths so that he can bring you up. And when Mary sings this, she's full of joy. I think she has some anticipation of, of what it will mean. Maybe not a full anticipation, but she understands that when Jesus comes for mer with mercy for us, he has to take the oppression of sin on himself so that he might conquer it through his life, through his death, his resurrection. You see, he not only enters into a world plagued with sin and oppression, he enters into our hearts, what Diane Langberg calls the first dungeon. And he brings the light of his grace, he brings the power of his love, which defeats death and defeats sin, he brings it into our hearts, and he bursts through the chains that bind us so that we can know freedom and forgiveness and redemption through his humiliation, through his exaltation. And as we see it in him, we can humble ourselves and embrace it for ourselves in faith. Have you encountered Christ? Do you know the joy of his grace and his forgiveness the way John the Baptist in the womb and Elizabeth and Mary did? Have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins and the freedom and joy that that brings? Have you humbled yourself and experienced the, the freedom of that great reversal? I will no longer lift myself up. I will no longer exalt myself. I will not be the master of my own life. I will submit. I will humble myself to the one who has loved me so deeply at his cross and his resurrection. Do you know his mercy and the hope that that brings, that this is a savior who delivers those who are under the oppression of sin, not from a distance. He goes all the way down and he brings you out with him. How should we respond to this good news? One way we respond is by coming to the table uh, to rejoice again, to remember in what it is that he has done for us in his dying and rising from the dead. As we receive him in faith, and all of the promises that come with that, we come to the table in faith as well to be confirmed in his love, to be renewed in our own faith before him, to be reminded his grace is enough and his grace is for you. Another way we respond is by praising, like John, like Elizabeth, like Mary, praising the Lord from the depths of our hearts, exalting him for the promises that he has made and kept in Jesus Christ. And then finally, perhaps the harder one, we bear witness. You bear witness to the grace of God that comes to all who are oppressed by sin, 